Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Mormon Thought. Today we're going to continue our discussion of Chapter 7, which is Divine Foreknowledge and the Mormon Concept of Free Agency. So last time we talked about hypothetical free will, and then some of the shortfalls of that, and then we went over libertarian free agency, and that seemed to be a pretty legitimate thing. And the main thing that we took from that was that in order to have actual free will, you have to have the ability to do otherwise in a certain situation. But now we're going to go over a section that addresses people that have objections to that claim that power to do otherwise is required for free will. And so right off the bat, one thing that we define, just so that we know what we're talking about, is called the principle of alternative possibilities. It's defined in the chapter as a person is morally responsible for an action the person has done only if that person could have done otherwise. And that's just simply the principle of alternative possibilities, which is like libertarian free will. And so that's what these people that we're going to talk about have objections to, is that that's required. So there's a guy named Harry Frankfurt, and all the examples are kind of based upon his initial example. They're called Frankfurt-type examples. So he has some examples, and it's similar to some of the examples we went over before with our guy named Rock and the scientists that kind of control his brain and make him do an action. And he has a similar one with two characters, one named Black and one named Jones. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what's significant about it? What Frankfurt was actually doing is not setting up counterexamples to the principle to do otherwise, but explaining his own view of free will. But it has been used widely by those discussing notions of free will to suggest that the power to do otherwise is not necessary. And the way that they demonstrate that is by giving counterexamples. And so they give a counterexample of Black is a really bad dude, and you've got some scientists who've implanted a, an electrode in his brain that can get him to do what they want. And they can monitor his thoughts so that they know whether he's about to do it or not. And so they want him to kill Jones. And so Black sits out to kill Jones. If he's about to back out, the scientist will push their button to cause him to kill Jones. But Black goes, he sees Jones, he dislikes him, and without any intervention from the scientist, he does just as he would have done even if the electrode hadn't been planted, and he shoots Jones. The question then arises, well, is Black responsible for what he did? Because he couldn't have done otherwise. If he were about not to kill Jones, the scientists would have intervened, causing him to do so. So in this circumstance, it appears that we have a counterexample to the notion that you have to have power to do otherwise in order to be both free and morally responsible. Because after all, Black did exactly what he would have done if the scientist had never existed and nothing were implanted in his brain, and he did just as he wanted to. And so the way that this is used as a counterexample to the notion and the argument from free will that you have to have this power to do otherwise that is included in the premise B8, which is the notion of free will at issue. All right, let me just read that. It kind of sums up what you just said. It says, Frankfurt suggests that in such cases, as the Black and Jones example, 
We have a clear example of a person who is morally responsible for his act, but was not free to do otherwise. Frankfurt examples purport to show one, if a person is actually caused to act as the person does, then that person is not morally responsible, and two, that the ability to do otherwise, assumed, like you said in the premise B8, is not essential to morally significant free action. And then we go into a couple more examples, which I thought were pretty fun, but just kind of illustrates the point. And so there's an example of a child that, let's say you walk past and you see a child that's drowning, and you want to save this child. Well, little do you know, if you try to save this child, there's actually a bunch of sharks in there, and either you'll be scared away by the sharks or you'll die. So it's actually impossible for you to free the child, but you don't know that, and so, well, you know, it's just the same type of example. Let me make the example a bit more perspicuous. So you're walking by the ocean, and you see a child thrashing about in the water. You know that you can go out and save the child, but uh, you don't do so. You walk along your merry way. Unbeknownst to you, there's a school of sharks just offshore, and if you tried to save the child, they would have had lunch on you. And so you couldn't possibly have carried out the act of saving the child, and the question that arises, are you responsible for not saving the child? You couldn't have saved the child even if you had tried. And so the question that arises, are you responsible for not saving the child? And the answer to that is, well, it did just as you would have done, and it doesn't seem that you're responsible for not saving the child. It seems, however, that what you are responsible for is something that you did have alternatives to. You're responsible for not trying to save the child. You couldn't have carried out your act, but you're still morally accountable for not even trying to save the child. The fact that there are sharks in the water, unbeknownst to you, doesn't enter into your moral responsibility. And so the bottom line is, this is a counterexample to the counterexample. What it shows is that when we carefully analyze the Frankfurt stories, we find out that we are responsible for matters to which there were alternatives, but we're not responsible for matters to which there were no alternatives. All right, and so you say, based on these examples, that those examples seem to satisfy CFA 1 and 2, which is conditions of free actions 1 and 2, but not 3. And to remind you what 3 is, it says, an agent is morally free with respect to an action of willing that action only if that person could have willed otherwise. And so it seems that it's not compatible with that. And then there's a quote from a person named Fisher. First off, who is Fisher and... Were they pro this or kind of against it? Or? John Martin Fisher is one of the leading philosophers in the area of the philosophy of mind and action. And his intention was to kind of adopt a neutral view of free will, which was neutral on the question as to whether or not the world is deterministic. His view was whether or not we are morally responsible shouldn't depend on whether or not the world is, is deterministic, because we frankly don't know. But it shouldn't turn on that. So he was looking for a way of, of getting a notion of free will. And so what he did is suggested that what was important was not what he called regulatory control, being able to choose among alternatives, but having the ability to act in a way that is consistent with our deliberations and rational assessment. Even if it's determined that I will act in accordance with my rational assessment, the fact that I can act in accordance with my rational assessment and on his view was sufficient. And so John Martin Fisher is a top-notch philosopher, but on this issue I believe he's wrong. It basically says the problem of determinism is not that it precludes me from acting otherwise, but that it plays a role in the decision-making process over which I have no control. 
And then you have kind of an interesting quote I didn't quite understand, and if you could explain it, that'd be great. It says, This argument thus tends to show that causal determinism is not compatible with moral responsibility, but infallible foreknowledge is. So what do you mean that infallible foreknowledge is compatible with moral responsibility? What those who are using this as an example are suggesting is, if the scientists actually intervene and causally determine you to act in a certain way, the intuition pump suggests that we'll come to the conclusion that we're not morally free. If I'm in the store and I'm not going to steal a Snickers bar, but the scientists caused me to steal a Snickers bar, I think it's universally agreed I'm not morally accountable for that because I didn't have control over the causes leading to my act. But it seems to suggest that I am accountable even though there aren't alternatives. And the argument from foreknowledge is only inconsistent with the notion that there are alternative possible future worlds that we can choose among. It's not inconsistent with the notion that there's a single world that is causally determined. <laughs> and so what they take these counterexamples to show is we've got a position now called semi-compatibilism, where free will is inconsistent with causal determinism, but it is consistent with foreknowledge. And so what we're jettisoning in is the third condition of free will. I've outlined three. The third condition of free will that we have to be able to do otherwise. Now note, there's a distinction between the principle as you read it and the way that it's stated in and what these guys are aiming at in their hypotheticals. And that is, they're talking about the ability to do otherwise, not the ability to will otherwise. And this is a very critical distinction. Right, and then you mentioned semi-compatibilism. And Jacob, if you could take over that section and just kind of introduce again what semi-compatibilism is, even though we kind of just said that, and then go over that. Pretty much if the ability to do otherwise is not required for free agency, then premise B8 can be rejected as argument B fails. And so semi-compatibilism is where one can adopt the view that persons have first-order desires. This would be things like food, sex, fame. And then they also have second-order desires, which are desires for one of these first-order desires to be their will. And that is for a first-order desire to be the desire which affects action. A person has free will, according to Frankfurt, if her second-order desire is the one that leads to action. However, if the second-order desire does not lead to action because it is overruled by the first-order desire, then the agent feels the desire as a compelling and alien impediment to free choice. So, in other words, there are desires that we have that are just inherent in us that we need for survival. They're more almost, almost like instincts. You know, you have to have food, you have to have shelter, and we seek after these things. And only if these things are met will a second-order desire be able to be something that we can act upon. And if we're acting merely upon a first-order desire, we're not really held accountable in some respects. An, an example that you give is a drug addict, if you go a little bit further into that. So what Frankfurt okay. was after was a way to distinguish between a willing addict and an unwilling addict. So let's say that I'm, I'm addicted to smoking. And if I can't stop smoking, even though I dearly want to do so, then I'm not free. I'm addicted. I may have had freedom at one time, but I'm no longer free with respect to this because I can't realize my desire to not smoke, which is a desire about the kind of person I want to be and what I want my will to be. But what I want my will to be is overruled by basic bodily needs and things like that. However, if I smoke and I'm happy with smoking and I don't even try to quit, then Frankfurt concluded I'm free. Because there's a harmony between my first-order desire 
to have tobacco and nicotine and my second order desire, which is my will about whether I want to smoke or not. But if I want to smoke and I do smoke, I'm free because there's this harmony. So that was Frankfurt's point of view. And that's why he concluded, he concluded, even though I can't act otherwise, I'm going to smoke on either condition. The question is whether I do so willingly or unwillingly. And if I smoke willingly, I'm free. If I smoke unwillingly, I'm not free. And that's what Frankfurt drew out of it. But as I said, the Frankfurt counterexamples are not really used by scholars in the foreknowledge debate to support Frankfurt's view of free will. They've adopted these to give us counterexamples to the principle of alternative possibilities, that is, the power to do otherwise. And so when they look at these, they say, well, look, I've got an example that shows where you can't act otherwise, but you're still morally accountable and you're still acting freely. And so we can jettison the requirement and therefore we have a view which is a good view for a Christian to have because we don't want free will to be compatible with causal determinism because then the problem of evil becomes difficult to solve. But we do have a view that is compatible with foreknowledge because I don't have to be able to do otherwise in order to be free and morally accountable. That's what semi-compatibilism was purporting to show and all those philosophers who adopt semi-compatibilism made essentially those arguments. This just reminds me of a story I remember hearing of I don't remember how many. I think there were three three people that were shipwrecked and they were stranded in the ocean and they were in a raft and they were starving to death. So what they decided is they were going to eat one of them. They all drew lots and whoever drew the short lot, they would kill and they would eat them. And so they did that. One person ended up getting the short lot, so they killed him. They ate him. When they came back to shore and they told him what had happened, they charged him with murder. Under semi-compatibilism, would they say that because this is a, a first order desire, this food, they were starving to death. Would they not be held accountable for that? They are because they were free because there was a harmony between their wills. They willed to kill somebody and their first order desire was that they kill somebody and eat them. And then they came up with a deliberative plan to kill them. And so their first order desire and their second order desires were in harmony. Therefore, under Frankfurt's view of accountability, they were morally responsible, even though you could argue Under the circumstances, they may not have really had any alternatives that were even viable for them. They had to survive. It was either they all die or one of them die. And it's morally preferable that one of them die rather than three of them die. So they made the right choice given a certain consequentialist view of ethics. And this is a famous English case, actually. So I believe that's what you're referring to. Yeah. Moving forward, um, if causal determination is true, then even the second-order desires are caused because they're not up to the free agents. And then speaking on this, you mentioned a few people, but then there's a quote from Zagzebski where she concludes, I have proposed a solution to the dilemma of foreknowledge and freedom that concedes that my acts are all accidentally necessarily due to God's foreknowledge. It also concedes that this means that I cannot act differently than I do given the conditions that obtain at the time of my act. However, I argued that it is a mistake to conclude that from this that my acts are not free in a strong sense of freedom, that it is incompatible with determinism. The idea was the conditions that make it the case that I do not do otherwise have nothing to do with my choice. I do not do what I do because I cannot do otherwise. My act does not counterfactually depend on the conditions that make it such that it cannot be otherwise. What Zabzewski has just defined is exactly semi-compatibilism which many Christians would like because they take it to be consistent with their belief in free will, but still to allow them to develop a strong argument against the compatibility of evil with free will. And so I should state God's responsibility for free actions of others 
if God can't cause them to do free acts consistent with their freedom, then we still have an argument based upon the free will defense. And so that was kind of what she wanted to arrive at, and lo and behold, she arrived at that kind of a conclusion. Zabzeski is also a first-rate philosopher. However, I think that she's quite missing the point here, again, with respect to what is actually relevant with respect to our free will, because what she's talking about are free actions, and there's an important distinction here. Yeah, and then you surmise that all the Frankfurt-style counter-examples break down into two main types. The first type is where the scientists intervene before the formation of an effective intention has been formed, and then the second type of counterexample is where the scientists intervene after the effective intention has been formed. What is the difference between those two? So let me explain. The scientists only act when they find out that you're going to do something that's inconsistent with what they want you to do. So in essence, you have formed an intention about what you want to do, and then they intervene to stop you from carrying out your intention. The reason that this is important is that it becomes evident immediately that at the level of intention, there are alternatives. You can either form the intention to steal the Snickers bar in in the store or refrain from selling the Snickers bar. And, And in fact, there are alternatives to that. What there aren't alternatives to is whether, in fact, you will steal the Snickers bar because the scientists want a Snickers bar. And if you're about to not steal the Snickers bar because that's what you've decided to do, they're going to intervene and cause you to want to steal the Snickers bar. So you've, in essence, at the level of will, formed the intention, and you had an alternative to that. You could have not formed that intention and just stolen it. And so what we're going to hold you accountable for in that circumstance is the will that you have to which there are alternative possibilities. And you're free and morally accountable precisely because you could have refrained from willing to steal the Mars bar, even though you can't, on the level of acting, actually refrain from selling the Mars bar given the intervention of the scientist. And so, once again, when we carefully analyze what we're held accountable for morally and what we're free with respect to, we find out that it's something we have alternatives open to us. And so, the after-forming intention counter-examples were largely abandoned by philosophers recognizing that that's not really going to do something. A guy named David Whitaker had a seminal article in which he pointed out that if in every single one of these examples, there are alternatives on the level of the will, and that's what we hold people accountable for, and so it's not really a counterexample to the ability to will otherwise. So they began to look for different counterexamples. What they found, they suggested was, well, let's have the scientists intervene before a will is actually formed. And this took the form of simply saying, well, let's give the scientists foreknowledge like God has, but it won't be infallible. So they know that when Black goes into the store to steal, that he's not going to desire to steal, so they're going to cause him to desire to steal. But this time they know something different. They know that when he goes in the store, he will steal on his own, so they don't need to intervene. The question then becomes, they still couldn't do otherwise on the level of acting, but this is before he even forms an intention, so they're just going to let him do what he does without having to worry about it. Well, it pointed out that these kinds of counterexamples aren't really counterexamples at all because they involve a logical fallacy, and it's a logical fallacy of inferring simply the given X necessarily X, which is certainly a logical fallacy in terms of moral logic. And so when that was pointed out, they began to look for alternative (laughs) counterexamples to to still see if they could come up with a counterexample to the principle of alternative possibilities. And then Eleanor Stump, another top-notch philosopher, came up with one where she suggests, well, let's say we have surgeons, and they're neurosurgeons, and they know that there's a certain brain sequence that when it starts, a thought and intention hasn't been fully formed, 
It's a neural sequence that only if it's fully completed actually results in an intention. And so what's going to happen is the scientists are watching, they see the formation of the neural sequence, but they interrupt it before an intention is formed. And my response to that kind of an example is that it's contrived. If the beginning to form the intention is the beginning of the neural sequence, it just follows that the forming of the neural sequence just is the beginning of a forming of an intention. And again, there are alternatives that are open to the person in that scenario. And I would object, in addition, that it assumes a form. There are different forms of libertarian free will. And this way of forming alternative possibilities, where if you have only a completed neural sequence and they want to interrupt it before the neural sequence has begun, then you make choices without any knowledge at all about the choices you're making. And it violates CFA2 because you don't know what you're deciding when you begin to decide. And what you wind up is what's known as a form of event causal libertarianism, where the causal act is simply an event over which you have no control. But that's the whole problem. And, you know, early on, philosophers argued that determinism was necessary for free action. The argument there is very simple, and that is, Determinism is necessary for free actions because if our acts are random, we're not responsible for random acts. And if libertarian free will is just suggesting that we act at random, that's not a description of free will either. So if you're walking by me and my arm just flies out at random and hits you in the nose, and I don't have any control over what my arm's doing, nobody's going to hold me morally accountable for the fact that my arm flies out because it really doesn't issue from my will. And so we need something more than just random events to constitute free will. And later in the chapter, I give a long example and description of what an act of free will is that involves a careful analysis. But at this point, it's just important to note that what Stump's counterexample tends out to be a malformed counterexample, not really a legitimate counterexample to the principle of alternative possibilities. Right. And as I understand, that's because you argue that if this neural sequence that is correlated with our act or will of free choice, then just by initiating that neural sequence, we've already, in effect, willed and chosen, even if they're somehow able to disrupt it. Exactly. And that's why I believe that the kind of counterexamples that have been formed to suggest that alternative possibilities are not necessary, every single one of them breaks down. And when we carefully analyze what we're accountable for, we find out that it's something to which there are alternative possibilities. So they're, in my view, not successful counterexamples to libertarian free will. However, we need to relocate where free will is found. Free will is not found necessarily in bodily actions. The fact that I can't carry out my will doesn't mean that my will isn't free. Let me give a couple of examples. And I think we've used one of these before. Let's say I'm paralyzed. I desire to move my arm, but I can't move my arm. I can either desire to move my arm or not move my arm. What I'm free with respect to what is the desire to move my arm, I can either choose to do that or not. What I'm not free with respect to if I'm paralyzed is actually moving my arm. I give another counterexample, and I'd like to take some credit here for coming up with what I constitute a disproof of the entire Frankfurt-style counterexample to the principle of alternative possibilities. And here's how I do it, and I haven't seen it elsewhere in the literature, but I believe it's a complete disproof and an important one. Let's say this time that Rock is in the store. The scientists want a Snickers bar, so if he goes in the store and is about not to steal a Snickers bar, then they're going to cause him to do it. I'm going to modify the example just a bit to show where the freedom is actually located and why we're morally accountable when there are alternative possibilities. 
This time, that suggests that Rock has become aware that the scientists want him to steal a Mars bar. Now Rock, because he's aware of the circumstances, can either steal, he's going to steal the Mars bar no matter what. Because if he's well, about not to steal the I, Mars I think, bar, they're going to intervene. I think you need to also, not only does he know that the scientists want him to do that, but he's also aware of the implant that is in his brain. Right. He knows that they can cause him to steal it. So he knows that no matter what happens, he's going to steal a Mars bar. However, he can either steal the Mars bar because he willed it, or he can steal the Mars bar because they caused him to will it. So if he goes in there and steals the Mars bar on his own, we I think we agree that he is accountable. Boy, what he's accountable for is he could have formed the willing not to steal the Mars bar. There was an alternative there. And he can make it so that if he refuses to steal the Mars bar, he does so unwillingly and in a way that he's not morally responsible for. Even though he's going to steal the Mars bar no matter what, he can bring it about that he's not morally responsible for stealing the Mars bar because he knows what the scientists are going to do and he's going to force them to force him to steal the Mars bar. So in this circumstance, what it proves is that he can refrain from willing to steal the Mars bar in such a way that when he steals the Mars bar, he's not morally accountable for it. And what he's morally accountable for is either stealing it willingly or stealing it unwillingly. And he can decide which way he does it. And so there are clear alternatives open to him. What the counterexamples have hidden is Rock's knowledge of the relevant circumstances in which he's making decisions, or CFA2. We don't make decisions that we're accountable for in a vacuum. We do so in a way where we're aware of the alternatives that are open to us. And what every single one of these counterexamples does is deprives the agent of the knowledge of the alternatives that are actually available, the real alternatives. It sets up a phony scenario where he's not aware of what his actual alternatives are and is going to act in a certain way no matter what, ignorantly, if he decides not to. And so I would say that these counterexamples are malformed because they leave out CFA2, which is that we have to appreciate the alternatives that are open to us and the moral import of what the alternatives are. And so it's only by placing the decision that we're making in free will into a vacuum that really doesn't take into consideration all the relevant considerations are they able to come up with these kinds of counterexamples. But I think it's demonstrable that all of these counterexamples fell, and it's obvious why they fell. They fell because we have alternatives open to us at the level of the will. We can choose to be accountable, or we're always accountable at the level of the will. We are accountable for carrying out an action willingly or unwillingly. What we're not accountable for is carrying out the action. And you also brought up another interesting situation that Rock could find himself in now that he's aware of the implant. He could surreptitiously try and warn the store owners that, hey, I'm going to be stealing this. And then the store owner could possibly take some sort of actions to stop him from stealing it. Yeah, so what he does is he begins to devise ways to circumvent what the scientists are doing so that he can be prevented by others from stealing. And anybody who is in a situation like that would immediately begin to deliberate about how do I overcome and get around what the scientists are trying to cause me to do. You can play around with all kinds of science fiction types of scenarios, but it seems to me that we're accountable as to whether or not we willingly carry out an act in a way that we're morally accountable for it, or we willingly carry it out and then we're forced to do an act and we're not morally accountable for the act. Well, that moves us on to libertarian free agency, and um, we'll go back to Corey on that one. I have in my notes that you go over libertarian free agency again as a reason we redefine it now, the LFA. 
or have we not been able to define it before? No, we've redefined it, but we've redefined it as the power of the will to will or to not will rather than the ability to do otherwise. And so I've relocated where the focus of our freedom lies. This is also a very Kantian position. Kant said that the power of the will to will one thing rather than another is like a golden gem. And it's the power to will, this power to act at the level of willing that is really the basis of our free will. And so it's important to realize that the counterexamples that have been given have failed to focus on the power of the will to will this or that or to will or not will at all, and have mislocated where our moral accountability and freedom of will actually lie. I'm going to just read this quote then, because I think we summed up the other parts. It says, Frankfurt-style examples presuppose the persons are free to form their inclinations as they intend and decide, at least logically, if not chronologically, prior to the scientist's intervention. For the scientist's intervention presupposes that Rock has formed an intention not to steal. Thus, Frankfurt-style examples actually support LFA, which is libertarian free agency, as the correct notion of free agency, for persons must be free not merely to do as they intend, but to initially formulate their intentions, even if their intentions are subject to intervention. And so that just goes back. So they're basically saying that even though they try to get around it, they're, like you've been saying, emphasizing the actual action as opposed to the will, whether or not that action is possible. And so... Yeah, makes sense. Um, is there anything you want to say before we move on to the next part? Only that there was a small cottage industry of articles in professional philosophical journals discussing these Frankfurt-style counterexamples, but one hardly finds them anymore because I think it's become the general consensus that they weren't effective counterexamples, and so that notion has been dropped. What's taken its place is really a two-step story, and since the book has been published, I'm just going to give my summary of what I believe has happened in the philosophy of mind and action since. There was a time when those who were arguing, they used a no-difference argument. So, for instance, if I'm free, I have to be able to rewind the world up to the time that I make the decision, and everything in the world is the same as it was when I made the decision before, but it has to be possible that I make a different decision if I rewind it. And so they ask, well, what explains the fact that you make a different decision? And if everything is exactly the same, then it seems just a matter of chance that you make a different decision. And so they're asking, well, what is it that accounts for the fact that you make the decision that you do then? And if it could be different given the entire history of the world up until the very moment of your decision, there doesn't seem to be an adequate explanation for why you decide what you do. There was a second line, and so what that suggests is that freedom of will is inconsistent both with determinism and with indeterminism. And that the way the libertarians describe the way that we make decisions doesn't lead to any kind of accountability or free will either, because it seems like our actions can't just be a matter of, well, I got to that point and just randomly decided something different. And that's why I I talked about the event-causal view of libertarian free will, because that's really the view that is being critiqued there. There is a different view, which I elucidate at the end of the chapter. And so what I want to suggest is that not every view of libertarian free will is successful. But what I want is an agent-causal position, and I outline an agent-causal position, but before I get there, there was another set of arguments that also made use of cognitive science. There were a number of experiments suggesting that if we did brain scans and looked at what the brain was doing, that people were not consciously making decisions about what they were doing. In other words, we would see brain activity that suggested that they made the decision up to seven seconds before they believed that they were actually aware of making a decision. 
And it seemed to follow that if it's not our conscious awareness that leads us to make a decision and we just make it without even being conscious of it, then it seems that we're not morally accountable because it just seems to rise out of our brain activity that we're not even aware of. And we don't have control over our brain activity if we're not conscious and, and aware of it. So we're not really free at all. These were lines of arguments that led to what I would call the argument that free will is simply illusory. We believe we have it, but we don't. I emphasize that this is a position that I don't believe that anybody could actually seriously take because nobody could act under the illusion that they're not free. Even the choice to act under that illusion would assume we're free. And I ask what sense it could possibly make to adopt a position which you couldn't possibly live in real life without contradicting your belief every time that you actually make a decision or act. Because pragmatically, that view has no meaning. But that was a view that I think was held by a lot of philosophers. I will say there is an excellent article that was published just a number of months ago by Andrea Lavazza, who is the Centro Universitario Internazionale in Brezzo, Italy. The Centro Universitario Internazionale actually means just universal center for universities. And what he does here is summarize the earlier view based upon the scientific experiments but also points out later scientific experiments that have built on those that have roundly critiqued those earlier experiments as incomplete and misleading and put them into a larger context, which show that what really happens is that we have a background activity in our brain, and there seems to be this kind of, of chaos in our brain. And then the brain self-organizes, and, and the self-organizing act of the brain results in a choice. And what we're looking at is not a choice. We're looking at the brain moving from what we would call a chaotic state that is defined by the mathematical theories of chaos to one that is synthetic and symmetric view, which has a kind of harmony that can be mathematically described. In other words, the neuroscience becomes very complicated, but the article is Free Will and Neuroscience from Explaining Freedom Away to New Ways of Operationalizing and Measuring It. And I would strongly recommend this article to anybody who's actually interested. It's a very thorough review of all of the literature beginning since the 1990s and looking at the critiques and then looking at the subsequent studies, which now are, they've kind of come full circle, in other words, to suggest, yeah, we do have free will. Earlier studies were made all kinds of assumptions that were bad assumptions and the scientific framework was not adequate to the question that it was asking. And so what I want to suggest is that the neuroscience has come full circle to where I believe most neuroscientists are now beginning to suggest that we have free will and we are finding new ways to look at it and measure it. All right. That's pretty interesting. Next in the book, you have another section that kind of asks this question. It says, is causal determinism essential to free acts? Why would someone think that causal determinism is essential to free acts? The argument has been made by a number of philosophers, and this is an argument that goes all the way back to the 1950s, that random acts can't possibly be free acts. They have to be acts that are consistent in some way with one's prior history, one's personality, and the choices that one makes. And there has to be some kind of causal connection between one's choices and having control over the results of the act in order to be morally accountable for the act. And that seems to assume determinism. However, there's a problem with this point of view, and that is that we still have all of these arguments suggesting that if we don't have control over the causes that lead to our actions, we're not morally accountable, and they don't really take those into consideration. But more importantly, the mere fact that 
we are acting in a manner that is consistent with prior acts doesn't mean that we're accountable for those acts. And I give a counterexample. Suppose in 1960 that I decided to have cornflakes rather than sugar pops. And as a result of my decision to have cornflakes, the causal result of doing that in the chain of causes results in my going to the opera next week. Well, the mere fact that there are prior causes doesn't mean that I'm morally accountable because I didn't take into consideration the relevant factors when I was choosing to have the cornflakes. So you're saying basically that if there was some sort of action and you're saying without you knowing about it, that particular action led to a chain of cause and effect that eventually was going to lead to this thing like 20 years later. Is that kind of what you're saying? Right. And what I'm arguing is the mere fact that our acts are consistent with a causal chain doesn't lead to the notion that we're morally accountable for our acts. I can give a counterexample where I show that I'm acting totally consistently with the prior causal acts that are acting through me, but the bottom line is I'm still not morally accountable because I didn't take into consideration relevant factors. Now, what we want as a position, and I'm going to jump to the end of the chapter here, and this is really kind of a novel view that I'm presenting because it's kind of a synthesis of a process view of free will and an agent-causal view of free will. Many people have written on an agent-causal view of free will. An agent-causal view is that there are two basic types of substances. You have a mental substance and you have a physical substance, and the mental substance just has the basic power of choosing and acting. And it kind of assumes Cartesian dualism when it comes to mind. Cartesian dualism is the notion that there are just two types of substances, physical substances and mental substances. So we ask, how is it that I have thoughts? What is it that causes me to have the kinds of consciousness and thoughts that I do? And the answer is, well, I I can't really explain that in terms of just being physical. So I posit that there's another spiritual substance that is responsible for my thoughts. Now, I'll add that just positing a substance doesn't explain anything. It just posits a substance with basic powers. And I suppose you could just say, well, why don't we just posit that matter has those basic powers? But most people reject Cartesian dualism because of the interaction argument. And that is, if I have something that takes up no space and has no physical presence and really has no physical force acting behind it in any way, How does it cause anything in the physical world? I have two very disparate substances, and how do they even interact with one another? So that's the basic problem of Cartesian dualism. Is that related to the mind-body problem that we've talked about previously? It is precisely related to the mind-body problem. And the argument I've given is why I believe that most people would reject Cartesian dualism. Cartesian meaning that it comes from the French philosopher Descartes. And so... People have been resistant to the agent-causal position because it seems to imply that there's this basic substance, but it can't really be scientifically studied. It's mysterious, and we can't find what it looks like, and there's no way to pin it down as being anything other than the fact that it's necessary to make sense out of free will and moral accountability. And for most people, that's just not a sufficient warrant to posit such a separate substance. And so what I do, I meld a process view with the notion of basic causal powers. It's what I would call an Aristotelian position. In Aristotelian metaphysics, matter acts the way it does because of the powers that are simply inherent in the most basic realities. So the fact that hydrogen and oxygen bond the way they do to create water is explained by just the fact that the balance of the electrons is such that they just happen to have basic powers that cause them to interact in that way. 
they bond with each other. They have the electrical charges that they do. It's just a basic fact about them. And you can't really analyze it or go behind it. That's just the way that it is. There are just these basic powers. But what I do is I place this in the context of a person who's making a decision. So what I want, if I'm going to have an adequate account of free will, is something that explains why my prior history of making decisions and why my personality and character have any role in the decisions that I make. And that is that I have to put the decisions that I make in the context of a history of a person. I have to put it in the context of a person who's in the act of making a decision. So let's say I walk into a 7-Eleven. And there is this juicy Mars bar there, and I'm very hungry, and I would like to have the Mars bar, but when I fish into my pocket for money, I find out I don't have any. I now have a decision to make. I want the Mars bar. I know I can just pick it up and walk out and steal it, but I know several things about myself. I know that if I steal it, I'm going to feel guilty. I know that if I steal it, I'm going to be acting in a way that is inconsistent with my moral commitments. And there's always the possibility of being caught. I can't rule that out, and I imagine what it will be like if I get caught. And imagine what it's going to be like if I steal it and the feelings I'm going to have. And so what happens here, notice what I've done. I have this basic human power of imagination. And it is a basic human power, a power of creativity to imagine a world that doesn't even exist. And it's this imaginary world that I create that now impinges on my decision. This isn't in the causal past. This is a reality of what the world will be like in the future that I'm imagining and creating now in the act of making a decision. I'm deliberating by imagining what the future is going to be. And in deliberating what the future is going to be, I have these basic facts about me that arise because of the history that I have. And so what I do is take into consideration these factors, and I have a basic power of what I call creative synthesis. I synthesize the factors, and it involves, at least as a human being, it involves a human body. I make a decision that involves brain activity as well. And so what happens is that we look at the brain as it's making a decision. This is a decision that was suggested by a gentleman named uh, Walter Freeman clear back in the 1980s, who was and, and remained the leading expert on basic mathematical theories of explaining brain behavior. And his view remained consistent over the 40 years of his life. He died, I believe, two years ago. Brilliant guy. And what he suggests is that the brain at rest, essentially, without engaging in perception or thought, is in a chaotic state where the mathematics of chaos describe how it functions. But then it self-organizes into deliberate activity. And we have different mathematical functions that then become relevant to look at the way the brain self-organizes, but they are inherently unpredictable. That's because they arise out of chaotic equations. Let me give you an example of what I have in mind, a self-organizing system, because I'm suggesting that the brain is a self-organizing system. When you're in the bathtub and you let the water out, if you watch carefully, you'll notice that a funnel automatically forms to let the water get out more efficiently. You know, you watch it and the funnel forms, and it's kind of interesting to watch as it drives the water down. What the funnel does is creates a more efficient way for the water to get out because it spins at a more rapid rate and the water actually empties much faster if there's a funnel, but the funnel forms on its own. There's no way to predict when it will form, how it will form, how strong it will be when it forms, because these are all described by chaotic mathematics. It's inherently unpredictable, but it is self-forming, and it's predictable within a certain range that a funnel will in fact form of some sort, where it will form, how it will form, and so forth, all up for grabs. 
But everybody's experienced the funnel when you let the water out of the bathtub if you have a bathtub. If not, do it in the sink. (laughs) It's easy to do. The brain is acting in this way where we're at rest, we're not making decisions. But as we then take into consideration those matters that impinge on our decision, the brain becomes active in organizing itself in a way that takes into consideration our prior history. I would suggest that is our character, moral values, imagination as to what is going to be involved. And we then take all of this and synthesize it into a decision where in a moment I suggest not going to steal that darn Snickers bar because even though I want it, I don't have the money and I'm a kind of person who does not steal. I'm not going to steal it. I walk out of the 7-Eleven wishing I had enough money to buy the Snickers bar, but I don't. And so that's basically a description of how we actually make decisions. And it involves something very critical. And Kant also finds this critical in the notion of what it is to be a human person and have free will. And that is the basic human power of imagination. When we make decisions, we almost always engage in imagining how the world will turn out if we make the decision in different ways. And this is not determined by the past because it doesn't even exist in the past. It doesn't even exist until we create in our imagination what we imagine it will be. And it's an interaction with possibilities of the future. And so what I've just described is a morally responsible free act that takes into consideration all of my prior history up until the time of making the decision. Could it be different? Yes, I could willingly synthesize the decision in a different way if I'm brought back to that same precipice to make the decision. Why would I make the decision differently? It would be because I give weight and value to what I value most differently, but it's an expression of my values. So if I decide that I'm going to steal the Mars bar, it will be because I've decided to disregard my strong moral feelings and my sense of being a moral person and to give precedence to my desire for something really sweet that will at least begin to fill me up. But it will make me fat. I don't want to get fat, so maybe I'll reconsider. Anyway, that's my explanation. This might be a bit of a different discussion, but do you think it changes? I don't know. Because you mentioned that a person's entire history is helping them determine this, but you're saying they're still morally responsible for their action. But let's say a person was... I didn't say it determines it. Well, not determines, but it, it has a large factor. Uh, just We're talking about moral responsibility. And like I said, I don't know if this, this might not be related to this conversation, but let's say a kid's kidnapped. Let's say his parents die at a very young age. He's raised on the street to be an orphan, and he is part of a weird child gang that's run by a corrupt man that has children go out and steal for him. So is this child going into the store still has the option to steal a Mars bar not, but he has kind of like a maybe a looser notion of right or wrong, or he's in very different circumstances. He's basically starving and he's going to get beat if he doesn't steal this Mars bar. Even if he knows it's wrong, he has a moral upbringing and consequences that would influence him more to steal this Mars bar. Is he still, would you consider him free then, or is he being coerced in some way, either by the man that may or may not beat him, or how he's been raised? Well, obviously, if you have a choice between being shot in the head or handing over a quarter, not much of a choice. That's an easy one. External coercion is relevant to whether or not a person acts freely. Let's change it a little bit and just say he imagines that this is a possibility that could happen to him, but he's been on the street stealing for survival the entire time. He grew up, and so he had a very different upbringing than I did. What comes into play then is his character and the values that he has 
And notice how we take into consideration those kinds of things. If you're a judge in a juvenile court and a young man comes in before you who has gone from foster home to foster home and has been on the streets at times having to survive by stealing, you'll take that into consideration and assessing how morally accountable you're going to hold that person. But you're also going to take it into consideration, do I believe this person's actually going to reform? Here's the amazing fact about human beings. There are always examples of people who were in the same situation as others who seem to all turn out bad. And there's some person who seems to just transcend those kinds of circumstances, and they act in a way that is inconsistent with their prior upbringing. They make a new choice. And here is the basic power of humans by imagination to imagine a different life and make a different choice. A different choice is possible as long as we have life and the ability to make choices and we're sane. And so this is consistent with the way that we actually do moral attributions. We take into consideration the prior history of a person. And if they act in a manner that's consistent with the way they've always acted, we're not surprised. Those that surprise us are those who don't, who overcome and transcend, or those who find a new way. They are the most morally inspiring. In fact, when we make movies, we make movies about people who overcome their circumstances and make a choice to make something out of their lives that was totally surprising, but they still had the basic power to do it. I'm going to make another distinction here. This comes in Fire on the Horizon. And so it's not really an analytic position, but let me suggest that there are two ways of being in the world. One is to be merely in the stream of causes and acting consistent with the past and to act unconsciously. You just, you do what you've always done. You know, you do what your parents taught you to do. You're not creative about it. You just go with the flow. You could also act consciously and be an act rather than being acted upon. Instead of just being the sum total of your past acted upon by everything that went before, you break with the causal factors that would determine you to be otherwise. And you creatively make of yourself somebody that you choose to be different. So when you say, and maybe everybody says this, I'm not going to do what my dad did in this circumstance. I choose something different. And then you find yourself turning into your parents, but you can still make the choice and become conscious and say, nope, I promised I wasn't going to do that and I'm not going to do that. And I have to be conscious in every moment where I'm tempted to just go with the flow and turn into my parents. I'm actually going to be a different person because I consciously decide to be a different person. I could point out all kinds of people who have consciously made this kind of choice and have been successful at it. Hard? Yeah, probably is. Impossible? Absolutely not, because humans have the basic power to create themselves, to imagine a better life, and to create that better life as they imagine it to be. And once they commit to what they imagine, we automatically begin to create and devise the means to arrive at what we've imagined to be the case so that we can bring it about. We're very powerful beings and creative beings. And that's, again, our freedom is, is tied up with our human dignity. It's tied up with our aspirations and everything that we hold valuable. And so it's not really something that, in my view, ought to be jettisoned. But more importantly, I think it's one of the greatest things about Mormonism, that it has always jealously guarded a strong notion of moral accountability and free will and a belief in the ability of people to create their lives as they choose them to be. This is an amazing thing about human beings, and I believe we actually have this power. I assert that we do, and I think that we experience it on a daily basis. Moving to the final section here, we've already talked about a lot of this, but I just wanted to read a couple of the quotes. The section is called A Mormon Concept of Free Agency, and that's what we're trying to come to here. This is a quote from a person that we've talked about before, Charles Hartshorn, and we talked about him just a few minutes ago, too. I want to read this quote from Charles Hartshorn. He's the process philosopher whose insights inspired this notion of free will that we talked about a little bit earlier. Each of us adds to the world something that no wisdom could have wholly foreseen. 
this creating, this deciding of the otherwise undecided, this forming of the previously inchoate, is our dignity. Each of us is an artist whose product is life or experience itself. And I really like that quote because it's saying, this is part of the definition of being human, is to not wholly act just based on your nature, like your physical desires and nature. It's to be able to feel those pushing you. And then we talked about, you know, your first order cause and second order. To feel those pushing you, but then have this moment that you stop and you do what you said. You have this creative synthesis of reasons. You use your mind, you use your reason, and you use your imagination, and then you act on that. And it's something new. It's something you create. Now, here's one thing I want to point out. Sometimes your assumptions or your creativity is totally just in your head and actually not based on any facts whatsoever. And you actually could still make a wrong decision just because you don't actually understand the way that it actually is. We call that assuming sometimes. Or some people make, I would say, when you say things after an event like, oh, I guess we misjudged that person. Or you made a snap judgment based on your understanding and then it didn't turn out to actually be correct. But that's beside the point. I'm just saying this creativity is what makes us human. It is, and it's also what gives us human dignity and demands of us to recognize the dignity of others. Kant, in fact, found the moral obligation owed to others to be grounded in their free will and their ability for rational capacity to reason. And so here's what I suggest. You're right that when we imagine the way the world could be, maybe we misassess the way things will actually work out. But what I suggest is that every person form and create in their imagination a vision of their greatest self. Imagine what you would be doing if you were acting on your values, if you were acting, given your talents, to your greatest capacity. Who would you be? What would you be doing? And how would you be accomplishing it? Imagine your greatest self, given your gifts, given your capacities, given your history, given what you've learned, given your life experience. Envision this person vividly and then be that person. Create and be creative. And as Hartshorn says, we're an artist, and the product of our artistry is our own personalities, our own character, our own self, and the life that we live. Choose to see the good in other people. There is always evil there, but we get to actually choose what we pay attention to. Choose your attitude. Choose to always be positive about the fact that we're blessed beyond belief and that the world is a beautiful place. Choose to focus on those things that work best. Choose to focus on the good in people. And we have these choices. These are actual choices that we can make. And it's not a distortion because we all choose what we'll focus on and notice. And we have this inherent capacity to choose the world we'll live in. And the ultimate fact of life that is the greatest secret of life is choose to be happy. Happiness is a choice. Choose to be positive. Choose to be the person that smiles. Choose to be the person that enlightens the life of others. Choose to be the person that lifts others. Choose to be your greatest self and your greatest vision of yourself. And then we realize the greatest vision by being that vision, envision again, because once you've climbed that mountain, there's a mountain beyond and you can envision something greater. That's good stuff. Just to bring it back around, let me just do a couple quotes and then I want to kind of sum up or explain again how this fits in with the big picture of what you're trying to do in the book in general. So here's a couple quotes from the book. It says, As required by Mormon scripture, this notion of free will provides that persons are not merely free to act in accordance with their depraved nature, as Augustine maintained. Rather, 
they are free to choose either good or evil, and to freely change their character or nature by such free choices. The Mormon view of agency is that persons are co-creators of themselves with God through free choices. As we said before, we are artists or creators of ourselves in the sense that we self-organize the data of our experience into our stream of consciousness. Our consciousness is in part our creation because we act to form the order which will make the swirling chaos into an ordered cosmos of our internal experience. And those ideas are taken from Doctrine and Covenants section 88 and 93 and a lot of other Mormon scriptures. Here it says, however, the Mormon scriptures are explicit that a part of the data made available to us to be integrated into our experience is God's own light and glory, the data of God's own experience. We are free to include or exclude the light or data of the divine experience which God offers to us as sheer grace on his part. To the extent that we reject it, however, we exclude the divine options from our experience. So this is a very processed view. What I'm suggesting is that we are free to reject the light that God offers us, his what we would call his divine lure in processed thought, or we're free to accept it and embody it to a greater extent. I suggest that we consciously seek to embody God's will for us and those around us. I'm going to make this observation. If we truly believe that God is love, I believe that love is the greatest power in the universe. And I'll follow that love anywhere because it's the greatest value I know or can possibly conceive. That kind of being that loves without any kind of limitation in a divine way that is always committed to the best interests of everybody and everything that kind of love is so all-encompassing and fulfilling. And I believe that love is actually the ultimate. If you want to have a first cause that explains everything, I believe it's love. I'll follow that, and I'll seek that being. And this is actually, I think, one of the most inspiring facets of Mormonism. This notion of the inherent free will that we have, that God is seeking to enhance by giving us greater options and inspiring us to greater vision of ourselves. In fact, such a great vision that it doesn't stop until we have and are everything that God is. And God is an everlasting, dynamic, creative advancement into novelty, to use Whitehead's phrase. God is ever-increasing. And so while God is in every moment the greatest being that actually exists, in the next moment God is actually greater because he's a creative being that synthesizes and creates a new vision and moves forward into novelty. And so what I want to say is that this is a vision that's worth committing one's life to. It's a vision that is worth recognizing that the others in our lives are so valuable and incredible. I mean, every person we meet with this kind of creative power, this kind of freedom, is a constant amazement. People who are constantly acting in ways that we can learn from forever. And every person we meet becomes a revelation to us of possibilities and newness. And precisely because we don't believe in determinism, we won't hold them in their past and say that we can judge them, because their past is not determinative of who they are or have to be. They're free to change. And because they're free to change, we can't judge them because of the belief that tomorrow they may, might make a different choice, and we seek to inspire and be inspired by that choice. And so it begins to look like something called Christianity. All right, beautiful. All right, just to sum up here, can you kind of reorient us to why we even had this discussion in the first place? How does divine foreknowledge come into, come into play of what we're talking about at all? 
Here's the notion. I'm asking the very basic question. Mormonism has a commitment to a strong view of free will. Given that commitment, can we reconcile that with the view that God knows that there's a single future that will be? I've argued that free will requires that there isn't just a single future that God knows is in fact going to be the case, but that the future is open. There are open opportunities and open alternatives available in the future, and therefore free will is not consistent with infallible foreknowledge. However, we're going to, in future chapters, talk about what that means. What are the implications if we deny that God has foreknowledge? What does it mean? We now have an adequate notion of free will, but that notion of free will requires a strong notion of libertarian free agency that's inconsistent with foreknowledge. So now I want to say I'm inspired by this notion of free will. It's consistent with so much that I want to say is entailed by Christianity um, and is required by the notions of repentance and not judging and so forth. But now I want to explore the implications and ask the next question. Is a God who is limited in some respects with respect to foreknowledge really God? Is that being worthy of our worship? Can we still say that this is God in the same sense uh, as a being that we previously may have believed had foreknowledge? And so we need to complete the picture by asking that question because now what I've done is committed to a strong version of free will because I have no relevant alternatives that really preserve the notion of moral accountability and free agency. And I think that the notion that uh, we are morally accountable is a bedrock notion that I just don't think human beings can even possibly shake realistically. And a person who doesn't believe that people are morally accountable, I think is going to ultimately turn out, if they really act on that and believe it, going to turn out to be something on the order of a sociopath. Okay, good summation. Um, did you have anything else, Jacob? Or any other questions or anything to say? No, I think we've, we've gone over it pretty well. and articulated the Mormon view. Well, I have a question. Do you find this to be inspiring, and what about it inspires you? I, I do find it to be inspiring, the, the fact that love being the driving force, uh, and that a, a perfect love, or a being that can love perfectly in the way that God does, is very inspiring, and it answers a lot of the, the whys, because it always comes back to love. Just to point out, I'll argue in a future volume, volume two, that the kind of love we have in question requires that we act freely. Love is the one thing that by its very nature, above everything else, that cannot be coerced and cannot simply be the result of everything that impinges on us and acts upon us. It has to be something that we adopt and create on our own as creative beings in the universe. It can't be something that is just in the cards or coerced. And so the very value of love is at stake in this discussion. All right, excellent stuff. So, yeah, we'll continue our discussion next time. You know, we're going over some things about divine foreknowledge, and some of it can get pretty muddy, but I hope you've been inspired and felt what I have. Just the concept that we have of free agency is very, very important in Mormon doctrine and theology, and I, I hope we've shed some light on to why that is in this discussion. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.